This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. In many ways, retirement after a federal career is all about the numbers. Do you have enough saved that, together with your annuity, you won't run out of money? In some ways, retirement is not about numbers at all, though. There's also the danger of being bored to death. For some non-monetary retirement advice, I spoke with federal retiree and AG Financial Services owner Abe Grungold. Yes, retirement is more than about just the numbers. You need to figure out what's important to you your first day of retirement. You have to plan for it. And you need to be flexible. That's the key, to be flexible. Well, let's talk about what's important to you, because for most people, you know, their family life, whatever form that is in, is maybe the most important thing. Sometimes it might be the second after their career and their work. But both of those things are what give people identity. And so you're losing 50% of what gave you your identity, which is your work and the associations there, too. Tom, it's perfect that you mentioned this. A friend of mine this week, who is also a client, he says to me, Abe, I'm retiring December 31st, but I'm going to lose my identity, uh, you know, as a federal employee. And he has a, a pretty big position with the government. And I told him, I said, no, you're not losing your identity. You're going to create a new one. And you certainly can do a lot of things in retirement. A lot of people work full-time doing something else and whatever makes them happy, whether it's opening up an antique store, working at Home Depot. I have a friend of mine who is going to be a farmer. He's going to be a farmer full-time. So you still can work full-time or part-time, and you just need to figure out if that is important to you. And some people don't work at all. You know, that idea of being a farmer reminds me of a line that the cowardly lion said in Wizard of Oz, the original version. The only question is, can somebody talk me out of this? But I guess he's going to go ahead. Does he have a tractor? (laughs) He has it all. I've spoken to him about it. He has tractor. He has animals. He's been doing this part-time for 10 years. And This is what he wants to do in retirement. He's still young. And even for me, I was planning my retirement, and I was fearful of going from working full-time to doing nothing. So I started my own business four years prior to retirement. I wanted to make sure that I was going to be doing something in retirement. Yes. And so the question is, yeah, work, but you can also occupy your time not working. But yet I think people find that if they are unoccupied by work, it has to be more than trivial stuff. I mean, how many times can you get up and read the grape nuts box and then go, you know, whatever, walk to the corner or something? I mean, at some point it has to be meaningful, even if it's not remunerative monetarily, those activities. Yes, it's perfect that you say that. It reminds me of the movie Groundhog Day when you get up every day in that movie and every day is the same. So certainly you don't want that. So what I did was 
I moved to a retirement community. And where I live now is just filled with various activities from sports to uh, social to other things like doing charity work. And I found that a retirement community, at least for me, was a perfect environment rather than being in my other home where I didn't have many activities to do on a day-to-day in retirement. Except pick out the Yadro statues and try to find ways to get rid of those because nobody wants them. <laughs> They're not worth two cents. <laughs> the, it, old, it, <laughs> the boomers will it, know what I'm talking about here. It is true. We downsized on many of our collectibles or tchotchkes, as we called them. And we found that they're just not important because our kids and our family just don't want them. Yep. Yeah, we went through that as well. And I guess Uh, maybe the important thing in moving to a retirement community is making sure that your lot is not too close to the pickleball courts. The noise could drive you crazy in about 20 minutes. It's funny. Where I live, I think we have 15 pickleball courts. Everyone has their own individual home. And many of the people ride their golf cart to the pickleball court. And many of them are playing twice a day. Now, I ran into a guy the other day who I bowl with. I'm on the bowling club. And he says, I'm not playing pickleball because pickleball has the most injuries of any type of thing for seniors. And he says, I live alone. If I get injured, who's going to drive me to the supermarket? So he refuses to play pickleball. So you really have to think about all these variables that go on with every activity. Yeah, you don't want to become a cop, which is a casualty of pickleball, I guess, (laughs) in retirement. But there's also the idea, by the way, my guest is Abe Grungold. He's a retired federal manager himself, now owner of AG Financial Services. The idea of meaningful activities that have transcendence beyond, you know, just amusing yourself, whether it's pickleball or whatever the case might be. But there are a lot of learnings and experiences you might have gained as a long-term federal employee that volunteer organizations, charities, and so on could really avail themselves of. And you would find that your activities would have both identity and meaning. Yes. I have a friend who wants to volunteer mentoring kids, you know, life learning skills. I have another friend who's volunteering with the city and county food bank. So yes, volunteering is a very important thing because you're giving back. You make yourself feel good when you're doing these wonderful deeds. And you are also keeping yourself active and mentally active. Now, I do a financial literacy course free for college students. And I've done that where my daughter goes to college. So I do that as a way of giving back and helping the younger generation. So volunteering is a very important thing. And I want to return to the question of when you begin your retirement planning. In some ways, you begin it on your first day of work by signing up for TSP and maxing out your contributions because that's the foundation of everything is having enough money. But then in the closer to the ground planning, when you actually are at that age when you can see the end of your career, you don't wait till two weeks before. No, no. You should be planning your retirement activities three to five years beforehand. Because you could have one idea and then you realize you don't want to do that one. And then you should think about another one. 
So you should have a couple ideas if you're going to work full-time or part-time, whether you're going to volunteer, whether you're going to play pickleball or golf or travel. Try to plan and have a flexible plan in the event that something doesn't work out for you that you can have a contingent plan to fall back on something else. So, yeah, I mean, I started out bowling this summer. And I decided I'm not going to bowl. I'm going to play golf in the wintertime. So you have to do what you feel is important. I guess you can go bowling with a golf ball, but you can't go golfing with a bowling ball. I did the bowling thing in the summer only because it is so hot in Florida. I needed to find an activity. I found that golfing nine holes was just too strenuous in the heat. So you need to have a flexible plan. You can't do the same thing every day. After a while, it's going to become monotonous. Abe Grungold, retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services and a regular contributor here on FedLife. We'll take a short break and then hear some related news you may not like about long-term care insurance. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. Federal employees have not been able to purchase long-term care insurance for the past couple of months. That's because the Office of Personnel Management suspended the program pending the new plans and prices expected from the carrier. And it's likely to be expensive. For what to expect, I spoke with the policy vice president of the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. John, let's talk about the impending premium increases for federal long-term care insurance. I mean, that whole industry is a little bit dubious right now, not just in the federal market, but generally. Is it the premiums going to keep going up? Where are they now? What's been happening? And is there really a future for the whole idea? Well, that's a good question. Just to start with where the federal long-term care insurance program is, they've been operating on seven-year master contracts between OPM and the insurer, John Hancock, that will allow premiums to go up every seven years. And they have enrollees, when they enrolled in the program, were told that these were the premiums that they hope to stay stable. Now, they can go up on a class basis to ensure the solvency of the fund, but there's that kind of fine print contractual language, but it's gone up to such a degree that it's hard to think any reasonable person could have predicted such a high premium increase. And so this newest contract renewal started in May. Enrollees are going to start receiving letters indicating their premium increases this week, the week of September 11th. And then they will have 60 days to make choices of whether to accept that premium increase or to take some reduced coverage as low as just getting coverage for the amount of premiums they paid. We don't know the total amount. OPM has not released that. They have released that in the past. The last time premiums went up, they went up as high as 126% and 83% on average. So expecting another huge premium increase, which is going to be very difficult for people to accept. 83% was the average last time. So we don't know. This time we have no numbers on the amount. I generally think that if they're not releasing the numbers, that's a bad sign for how high it will be. And so we'll have to see and get it based on anecdotal reports from our members, kind of the range of what the premium increases are going to be. So I think you're right when you say this has happened in other long-term care plans. 
There's not a lot of group long-term care insurance. You know, there's CalPERS. I think there was one in Minnesota. They've experienced similar high premium increases. If you purchased a private sector plan that's just long-term care insurance, those have also had premium increases. One of the things that kind of came out in a study of this program compared to the private sector alternatives is a couple of things that are unique that I think are bothersome, which is one, they take into account the investment returns or lack thereof of the insurer when setting these premiums, and they still have this guaranteed profit structure. Whereas in the private sector, those plans were on the hook for potential losses in a greater way, I think, than the insurer has been insulated from them here. And for them to still be having some guaranteed profit while these premiums continue to go up and up, I think it's becoming harder and harder for enrollees to accept, especially when these are guaranteed renewable contracts. So I think taking a look at that and what the justification is for these continued profits with these high premium increases is something we'd like to see. Yeah, I guess really the dynamic here is that unlike house insurance or something, a tiny percentage of houses are lost by fire or flood. And so right. the profile is known of you know what's going to happen. In right. insurance, probably a much higher percentage of the population is getting to the point where they need long-term care insurance. And so you have instead of a premium to payout ratio of maybe a million to one or 100,000 right. to one, it's maybe 10 to one. It's a little bit more of an investment and a little bit more similar to life insurance, particularly whole life insurance. Now, whole life insurance you're going to collect on, right? You know, and long-term care, I, th I think the percentage is around 50%. So it's not quite there, but it is a little bit more of an investment and protection of your assets for your heirs as compared to let's plan sure. for the contingency that you may have this eventuality when it's very likely you will. So it's just turned out that, look, it's still a very valuable coverage. It's still something everybody should be planning for and have something in the works. But I think what's difficult for FELSIP enrollees is, well, they were planning, they did put the money away, and now it's either unaffordable to continue paying these premiums or they're left with coverage that they feel is inadequate for what their needs are going to be. And so if people were overinsured already, then, you know, maybe they can reduce those premiums or keep the premiums flat and keep lower coverage. But again, they're still worse off in this situation. Also, the coverage that is the benefit of these plans is also going down. They used to cover as long as you needed the care, you were insured for it. Now it's 36 months maximum or 24 months maximum. The idea is the insurance company presumes you'll say goodbye permanently instead of running up seven yeah, years of insurance. Newly offered coverage and newly offered coverage has been suspended in FELTSIP, but for outside of FELTSIP, you'd have that. People will have the choice of whether to take these reduced coverage. So they may have this choice to take the increased premiums, but keep the same higher coverage. So there's not a force in change of coverage for individuals here, but they may just be paying astronomical amounts and premiums for that coverage that's no longer being offered to people newly now. So people aren't going to be forced to say take less coverage, it's just they may be paying a lot more for it. So you really have to do a calculus. If you spend 20 yeah. years paying a monthly premium, which turns out to be equal to the 24-month payment you would otherwise have for long-term care, then right. you're nowhere. <laughs> right, right. And so I think if people have this coverage, and I think that's another frustrating part. They're a little bit locked in. They can't just take their money back and say, invest it somewhere else or go back and invest it differently. But they may have a, a value in their coverage right now that is worth a lot and so they'll want to keep it so figuring out what is the best way to keep this coverage or some percentage of this coverage for them and then pairing it with other planning for their long-term care and you know it, taking a fresh look at 
do I really need this total level of coverage or can I combine the long-term care insurance coverage with my annuity, with my savings to get to a point that I am secure in that end of my retirement? Well, we'll just have to see what those premiums look like when they come out. And uh, maybe OPM hasn't revealed them because they know how bad it's going to be. That's my guess, but uh, I won't put words in their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of OPM, then we are looking at all sorts of lurid possibilities for the operation of the government over the interstice between September 30th and October 1st this year. And you got the idea maybe this could actually affect the retirement services, which OPM struggles to keep afloat as it is. Yeah, well, I think the the outcome of the ultimate negotiation will implicate retirement services. And is there going to be a flat funding or is there going to be increase or is there actually going to be a decrease? So the House bill would have a decrease in funding for OPM back to 22 levels, the Senate bill would increase funding by 35 million. And specifically their report language indicates that this should go to improving retirement services, improving IT modernization, uh, and making sure the rollout of the Postal Service Health Benefits Program is done correctly. And I think those all are and should be the top priorities for OPM. And so our hope is that that Senate bill language and amount of money is authorized to OPM because we're at a stage where it is way past time for them to modernize their systems, particularly for retirement services. Right. But it's not as if they haven't had budget for that in the past. True, true. And I think, you know, there was once where they had a contract for multi-million dollars and it totally failed to modernize the system. And so I think that had led to some backlogs because they had reduced staff in anticipation of that in the early 2010s. And then they solved that problem by just increasing staff and increasing overtime. And then, you know, have had this seemingly incremental approach, but there hasn't been that much progress. And they're looking to roll out a pilot of an online retirement application by the end of this year. And if that's successful, hopefully do that government-wide. That's a really good sign for us. I don't think this should be a paper-based application system, even if you're forced to have some paper in the process because you can't digitize all these files at once. But you know, just having an application where, you know, hey, there's a missing document, there's a missing field, and that alerts the person filling out the application before it gets sent over the way kind of we do online applications today, whether it's a, a basic online form or a mortgage application, I think could help the entire process move along better. Uh, you're going to probably have less errors coming from agencies over to OPM. And so I'm hopeful that that could make some improvements. Yeah, well, if every single new federal employee starting now did everything digitally, Golly, in 40 years, it would all be online. We'd have no problem when <laughs> right, everyone right. kind of passes. I think that's the, the long-term view is, is to get all the underlying forms like the SF50 forms in digitized and then integrated. But then that's a much harder lift. When the emu eats the cherry in its beak, the seed comes out the other end eventually. And then, you know, it's all ready. And just a final question. You've been watching these anti-shutdown bills. There's the Kane buyer bill, which we've reported on extensively. Not even sure they're constitutional, but they would certainly be practical. Then there's the Lankford-Hassan bill. What's your take on those? I don't see them being passed anytime soon, but it's good to see efforts to try to prevent a shutdown and think about what processes can be put in place to do so. I think particularly the Langford-Hassan bill being bipartisan and on the Senate side, gives a little bit more hope. You know, they're all based on the idea that you have an automatic continuing resolution and then some other elements that maybe force Congress to be in D.C. and working just on this and not doing other business. 
But I think there's a lot of balance there when you get into the details of these where, you know, would one side of the negotiations try to leverage the new situation and say, well, we'll never pass any new appropriations and we'll just live with this CR. And so even uh, Rand Paul has a bill that would reduce funding, you know, it would go from a, the same level to, you know, 1% less and, and uh, Senator Braun has something similar as well. So I think where this gets tricky in terms of putting in solution that prevents shutdowns is how are people going to leverage this automatic CR or not? And are they going to gum up the works of government or Congress in the meantime? Sure. Because you think that's better. Yeah, and they're so. almost like drunks that have a drag me home bill instead of a bill <laughs> to prevent me from drinking bill and, you know, get me sober bill is kind yeah. of the way I look at it. John Hatton is staff vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And that's it for this week's FedLife. We'll be back next week with more on what you need to know for your professional and financial life. Until then, I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.